Okay, we're going to talk this morning about uh, some more of our series. The series we're going through right now is contrasting and comparing the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. If you look in Galatians chapter 5, he basically says this. Listen, there's two different ways you can live. You can live according to the flesh and all the things that the flesh produces. And he has a whole list of terrible sins. He said, or you can live according to the fruit of the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit produce fruit in your life. And he's got a list of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, patience. And today we are going to talk about specifically the sins that he lists that I've highlighted here. The, the sexual sins. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. He says, I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he talks here about what we call sexual sins. And you know in James, he says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to keep himself unspotted from the world. And he says, visit the fatherless and the... the Widows, But specifically here, he's talking about keeping yourself unspotted from the world. A few years ago, uh, we went to downtown, and my wife and daughters, and I think some of the uh, cousins and all, did a color run. You all know what a color run is? They run these 5Ks, and they have all, all this powder. You can see that powder there, and people throw this powder up in the air when the runners run by. And when you're done, you look like this. You got powder all over you. You know, the truth is you and I live in a dirty world. And it's everywhere. And it's tough to keep that stuff off of you. It's tough to stay unspotted from this world. And I've talked to young people who got all caught up in some kind of sexual sin or something, and sometimes I've heard people even say, well, nobody warned me. Well, I want to be clear this morning. You're being warned, okay? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's part of the Ten Commandments. It's repeated all the way through the Bible. Don't do it. He says this, Flee from sexual immorality. You know the story of Joseph. How Joseph was working for a guy named Potiphar and Potiphar's wife grabs him and tries, she tried to seduce him and tried to drag him in and he just left, his, left her holding his coat, actually his clothes, and he ran to get away from that. That idea is repeated right here. You run from it. Get away from it. Flee. Have any of y'all seen the video of people trying to hang on the airplanes and try to flee out of Afghanistan? Have y'all seen that? That's the idea here. Would you be that serious about getting away from sexual immorality? Look what he says here. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the, uh, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He said, sexually immoral people shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. God is serious about this. 
You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says this is a serious thing. It's not casual like our world takes it. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's got a whole list of stuff in this passage. But these in particular we're going to talk about today. Are you sure you don't do these things? What are these things? We don't use these words a whole lot anymore in our culture. The word adultery is used some. But these other words, they're not used a whole lot. Let's look at what they mean. First, the word fornication. Fornication is just a broad word and it means any sexual activity that's condemned by Scripture. Anything that God says don't in the, range, in the realm of sexual activity that someone does is fornication. Look at this Scripture. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the word fornication that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says God's will is for you to abstain from that stuff, to stay away from it. Don't be like people who can't control themselves. Don't be like people who just are overwhelmed by their passions. But you as a Christian are to be sanctified. That's be holy. Abstain from that and control your own body. The word adultery. A lot of times those words are used interchangeably, but they're not the same word. They're different words. And I put the Greek word up there for those of you who are Greek scholars here today. Um, any sexual activity condemned by Scripture that also violates the covenant of marriage is adultery. So it's fornication for a young man and his girlfriend to have sexual relations on a date when they're not married. It's adultery if the guy or the girl or both are married to someone else. Adultery has inherent in the idea a violation of a sacred covenant that someone has made. And God takes adultery very, very seriously. He talks about those in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls and have hearts trained in greed. They're accursed children. God never looks lightly toward the sin of adultery. It's a very damaging thing. The word uncleanness it's a general word, just means any type of moral or sexual impurity. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions. That's that same Greek word there of uncleanness. Here it says God will reserve the person to judgment under punishment if they indulge in the lust of defiling passions. And then the other word there just disappeared. 
The other word is lasciviousness, okay? And while Yancey's bringing that back up, lasciviousness is a word that means being preoccupied with bodily or sexual pleasure so that it overcomes you, so that it overtakes you. Have you ever heard about people who are addicted to pornography? Have you all heard of that? There's a lot of people in this world that we live in that are addicted to pornography. That's the idea there. The idea is that of, uh, there we go. Preoccupation with bodily or sexual pleasure. And it's exhibited by excessive and unrestrained excitement of the physical senses for personal gratification. The Bible says they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. That's the word there. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. He says that's not the way Christians live. You don't involve yourself in this unrestrained seeking of fulfillment of these bodily passions that people have. He says that's not Christianity. Now, you and I know that the Bible says sexual acts outside of marriage are sinful and can cost your soul. We've read these verses. There are many things that the Bible says that are different than what the world says, though. The world that you live in says it's not a big deal. I, I can remember when I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. And there was a girl in my class. Now, this was a long time ago, 1980, the last millennia, okay? And this young lady in my class, when I was a senior in high school, got pregnant. She dropped out of school. She went and lived with an aunt. Now, you might say, man, that sounds like a little house on the prairie days. Yeah, maybe. Do you think there's any shame in that today? In our current world? In the culture? No. There was then though. Her family was ashamed. She was ashamed. And she was ashamed not of being pregnant, but because the pregnancy exposed the sin that she had been participating in. And it embarrassed her and it embarrassed her family. Today, there's shame in having a baby daddy than having a husband in our culture. Look at this. Y'all know who those people are? Famous movie stars, Goldie Hawn and... Kurt Russell. I was thinking Kirk Douglas, and I knew he's like 900 years old. It's not him. <laughs> Kurt Russell. They've been living together for years, not married, very famously. They've been interviewed about it many, many times. And their answer is this. She says, I don't see the point in getting married. He says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you know what? No one cares. Nobody cares. It's just okay with everyone. Y'all remember Deflategate? Everybody cared about Deflategate. This guy's putting less air in the football, and so he's throwing less interceptions. I mean, that's a big deal. Everybody cared about that, right? But he got his girlfriend pregnant and then cheated on her and dumped her. Nobody cares about that. Have you ever heard, even heard that? Nobody talks about that. Because in this culture, 
the world we live in, the world doesn't care about immorality. Is sex outside marriage morally acceptable? This was a, a study that was published in 2021, and 69% of Americans said it is morally acceptable. That's almost seven out of every 10 said it's just fine. I know that's too small for y'all to read, but that's what it says. 70%, only 28% of the people said it was morally wrong. Is homosexuality morally acceptable? 69% said yes. And 30% said no. So there's 2% more people that say homosexuality is wrong than say just sleeping around is wrong. That's the world you live in. In America today, live births, the most recent study I could find said over 40% of all children born in America are born out of wedlock. They're born to parents who aren't married. Now that does not include the kids who were conceived before the parents were married because there's a lot of folks still that'll get married if they find out they're expecting a child. Sex outside of marriage in a survey, and I know there's lots of different surveys done and who knows which one's the most accurate, but this one recent survey said that 93% of people in America admit to having sex outside of marriage. That's 93 out of every 100 people. That's a lot. In fact, in our world, that's so much that almost no one believes the sexual activity condemned by the Bible is really wrong anymore. People used to believe that was wrong. You, you think I'm old, talk to some of our older, we do have a few people here older than me, talk to them. People used to really believe that was wrong. Everyone believed it was wrong. Not anymore. Not today. In fact, the world you live in today, many people believe it is morally wrong to condemn the things that the Bible condemns. It's morally wrong for you to say somebody needs to get married before they have sex. They believe that's morally wrong. They believe it's morally wrong for you to say homosexuality is wrong. We live in a world that is very, very anti the things the Bible teaches. But that shouldn't surprise us because the Apostle Paul said this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul wrote a letter and he said, don't you have anything to do with sexually immoral people? He said, however, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, since then you would need to go out of the world. Even back in Paul's day, he says, when I said don't have anything to do with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about the folks at work or the folks at school because you'd have to quit school, wouldn't you? I mean, we've got some college students here. You'd have to quit school to get away from that, right? You'd have to quit your job to get away from people like that. He said, that's not what I'm talking about because that's the way the world is. And because of that, I want you to know that this message today is just for Christians. I'm not preaching to the world. Now, we may have some people here who aren't Christians, or we may have somebody watching on YouTube, or not YouTube, but uh, Facebook that's not a Christian. And you're welcome to listen and understand these things, but this message is for Christians. What the Bible has to say about this is for Christians, but you know even in uh, people who call themselves Christians, the news isn't a lot better. This is more uh, survey news that came out just recently. 
Regular attenders are less likely than others to approve of premarital sex among adults in committed relationships. These were people who are Christians or claim Christianity. 57% of those people said that if you're in a committed relationship, it's either always or sometimes okay to have sexual relations outside of marriage. That's people that claim to be Christians. It's people like this. Openly proclaims his Christianity. Famous football player. Constantly proclaiming his Christianity. Every time you see him interviewed, he says something about Jesus. This guy is married and has two kids with his wife and he's got five that they know of, although he found out about a child he didn't know he had not too long ago with at least five other women constantly proclaiming his Christianity. It's not a contradiction to people who claim to be Christians many times to be very immoral in their sexuality. And no one cares. It doesn't matter. There's been so much focus on other things, but today I want to warn you like Solomon warned his son. There's two full chapters in Proverbs and many, many other smaller sections of Proverbs that warn about this sin and about how this sin is damaging and destructive. And Solomon tells his son this. He says, you will lose these things. He said, you will give your honor to others if you involve yourself in fornication and adultery. Your honor will be gone. You will give it to other people. He says, your years you will give to the cruel one. It's going to cost you years of your life in very cruel and bad circumstances. He said, the aliens will be filled with your wealth. It's a very costly thing, especially if you're married, to involve yourself in sexual immorality. And it can be very costly financially also. When your flesh and your body are consumed... You know what STDs are? Sexually transmitted diseases? Those have been around for as long as sexual immorality has been around. And they've killed lots and lots and lots of people. Solomon told his son, you do this, you're asking for this kind of problem. He talks about this young man. He said he did not know that it would cost his life. This would even cost someone's life. And finally, Solomon warns his son, he said, her house is the way to hell. You know, I hear that in, in uh, Afghanistan they're going to execute Christians, that they've already started doing that. I heard this morning that they will force people to give them their phones, and if they find a Bible on the phone, they'll kill the person. Now that's terrible, right? But if those people are Christians, they go straight to heaven and the suffering's over. That's not the case here. You don't get to leave and the suffering's over here. But the suffering is an eternal suffering. You know, one of the worst things about this type of sin, and it's true of all sin, but specifically this type of sin, is what it does to your conscience. You know, you can read in the Bible about people who had consciences that were seared with a hot iron. Okay? 
sometimes we turn on the TV and we see, you know, some kid that goes in a house and trying to steal some money and kills all the family and stuff, and they say, he's got no conscience. Somebody with no conscience. Sin affects your conscience. Sin changes you inside. The Bible says in Hebrews 5 verse 14, he says, but exhort, or actually that should be 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know when you do something, the very first time you do something that you believe is wrong, that you've been taught from God's Word is wrong, the first time you do that, you feel terrible. But the second time you do it, you may feel terrible, but you don't feel quite as terrible as you did the first time. And the next time, you still feel bad, but not quite as bad. And it hardens your heart. Your conscience is shrunk down to where it doesn't bother you. It doesn't prick your heart. You don't feel terrible about doing stuff that's terrible. Because sin shrinks your conscience. It hardens your heart. Now the very opposite of that is true if we're careful. But solid food is for mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says you grow and get more mature and more sensitive as a Christian when you spend more time discerning between what's right and wrong and doing what's right instead of what's wrong. You know the Apostle Paul is an example of that. You know he killed people because they were Christians, right? And you know what he said about that? He said, I thought I was doing good. He said, I felt good about doing that. Once he became a Christian, an apostle, converted thousands of people, you know what he said about himself? Oh, wretched man that I am. Why? He felt good when he was living in sin and he felt less good you know why? Because his conscience was so much more sincere. His conscience was sensitive. When he did something that was wrong as an apostle, he knew it was wrong and he felt it and he hated it. But when he was doing wrong things, fighting against Christ, it didn't bother him. You see, it's critical for you to not let this be your conscience. It can be snuffed out. You can get to the point where you'll do things you never believed, never dreamed that you would do. And it doesn't happen all at once. It's a hardening, like concrete hardens over time. And your heart will harden too. So what can you do about it? Well, I want to give you a few things you can do. One, you need to learn to hate evil. You need to learn to despise evil. I'm not talking about not doing it, but loving it and wishing you could. I'm talking about hating it. Okay? There's a difference in not liking something and hating it, isn't there? Okay? I don't like green beans in a can that are just poured in a, in a pot and boiled. I don't, I don't like that. But I despise cauliflower. <laughs> There's a difference in those two, right? I have always disliked the abuse of alcohol. But since that drunk hit Jacob, I hate it. You understand the difference? 
You need to learn to hate sin. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Do you remember Job? Job was such a righteous man that God points him out to Satan and said, Hey, have you seen Job? You know what the Bible says about Job? It says he was righteous and he hated evil. He despised evil. It wasn't okay with him. He didn't just go, well, man, you know, it'd be better if they didn't do that. I wish, hope none of my kids do that. What's on TV tonight? That's not the way he lived. He hated evil. He despised it. Well, how do you learn to hate evil? Well, there are many things in the Bible, and it would be an hour-long lesson if I went on into all of that, so I'm not going to. But I tell you, two things you need to do in your mind if you want to hate evil maximize the consequences and minimize the benefits in your mind. Think about how bad, think about the people that get hurt. Think about the suffering that's caused. Think about the consequences of your sin. And minimize the benefit. Don't sit around and think about how fun it's going to be. Don't seek it, don't get excited about it, but put your mind away from it and maximize the sick and sad and hurtful consequences of the things that are sinful that you have a ten tendency to do. Number two, make no provision for the flesh. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, that's real simple this. Make it to where you're probably going to get caught and you can't get away with it. Make it hard. If you have a problem with alcohol, don't drive home past a bar or a liquor store. Just stay away from it. Don't make provision for the flesh. If you have a tendency to sneak around and do something that's not right, share your location with the elders and your wife and everyone else around you so people know where you're at. Don't make provision for the flesh. Don't say, I'm going to quit and then keep the spare key to her house. Make no provision for the flesh. Destroy your avenues. Tear up that road or that bridge that leads to whatever it is that you have a weakness with. Specifically, sexual sin. If it's sexual sin that like is pornography, if you can't get away from that, get rid of the internet. You don't need the internet and go to hell. It's not worth that. You might say, well, I have to have the internet for my job. Get a different job. It's better than going to hell. Do whatever it takes to remove the provision for the flesh. Get it out of your life. Now, I know that's hard. The only time that happens is when you repent and you're committed to completely change your life. When you make that commitment, you'll get rid of those things. You'll be willing to get rid of those things. You'll want to get rid of those things. I'm not saying none of them will have a tug on you. They will. But you can change that. You can open yourself up to accountability with, with somebody that you can tell the truth to and they'll hold you accountable. Don't make any provision for the flesh at all. Number three, transform your thoughts. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
You see, God holds you accountable for how you use your body. Not just these parts of it, but your brain is part of your body. And God holds you accountable for what you think about. Now, my dad always told me as a young man talking about sexual purity, he said this, Michael, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Okay? And what he meant by that was this. Sometimes a thought's just going to come to you that, that's not a good godly thought. Sometimes that happens. But you don't have to sit and think about it. You don't have to meditate on it. You don't have to hold on to that thought. You don't have to build on that thought and imagine that and build this world around it. You don't have to do that. You have control over your mind. Now, you might say, well, I don't have very good control over my mind. That's probably true of a lot of us. But you do have the ability to do that. With God's help, you can control what you think about. And you don't have to think about committing that sin. You don't have to think about that unrighteousness. You can think about righteousness. You can think about faithfully serving God. If you have trouble with that, a time when you're clear-minded, sit down and make you a list of godly things to think about. Stick it in your wallet or stick it in your purse. Carry it with you. And you get caught in a situation where you're struggling and you're having trouble with that, pull out that list and start praying and talking to God about everything on that list. Now that's a very practical thing you can do, but it's, it, it'll work. You can control the things that you think about. If you will learn to hate evil, if you will make no provision for the flesh and you'll change the way you think, the way you think about your spouse, the way you think about women, the way you think about men, the way you think about pornography, the way you think about the sexual pleasure that is a part of most people's lives, the way you think about those things, if you'll change that, you can change who you are. You can be different. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. Jesus died to make you free from that. You know what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, give me a big hug. He didn't say, if you love me, sing this heartfelt song. He said, if you love me, do what I told you to do. Now that's a commitment. You can do that. These are the things that God has told us to do. And there is to be no place for this in the church. We read a passage earlier where the Apostle Paul said, I told you not to have anything to do with the sexually immoral, but I didn't mean the people in this world. You know what the rest of that passage says? I meant to get it in the PowerPoint and I didn't. You know what the rest of that passage says? He says, don't you even eat a meal with a person who claims Christ but embraces immorality. Don't, even, don't go to the ball game with them. Don't hang out to them. Don't go to the mall. Don't go shopping with them. If they claim Christ and they openly embrace sexual immorality, God's people are not to have anything to do with that. And he says, that's not true of the people at work. You can't get away from that. But people who claim Christ are different. And unfortunately, in America, there doesn't seem to be that big a difference in people who claim Christ and people who don't. But in God's will, in God's way, in God's mind, in God's thoughts, and with God's people, there should be a difference. You know what the alternative is? 
the alternative is laid out by Solomon as he talks to his son. He says to his son, he says, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad in streams of water in the streets? He says, you get married and you enjoy a sexual relationship in your home, in your marriage. That's God's plan. That's God's solution to this problem. He says, let them be, your own, be only your own and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. That's God's solution to sexual immorality. Now you know that in America today, in our culture, people don't get married a whole lot. People just live together. They just... We, when I was young, we called it shacking up. I know that betrays my age, but... They just they don't get married. They just live together. They have a significant other instead of a husband or a wife. God says His solution to that, you get married and you have a fulfilling, intimate relationship with your spouse. And that's the solution to sexual immorality. He says this, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's God's answer to this problem. And I want to close by reading with you this one last final warning, the way Solomon ended this section when he was talking to his son. And he said this, For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of, of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. Why should you do this? Why would you do this knowing that God is watching everything you do constantly? He sees. You can't turn the computer away from the door and close the door and turn out the lights. You can't sneak off to her house and turn off your location. You can't get away with it. God is there all the time. And we as Christians, more than anyone else on the face of this earth, should know that. That God is with us. And so my call to you today is two things. Number one, if you're involved in sexual immorality, repent. Don't lose your soul over that. There's a lot of people, probably here in this congregation, who've been involved in that in times past. Who've repented and walked away from it. And don't participate that way anymore. Be one of those who repents and turns from it. Number two, he says in Romans 1, not only those who do these things, but those who approve of those who do them. Don't approve of it. Take a stand. Speak against it. Not necessarily out in the world, but among people who claim to be Christian. Speak up. Say, that's not right. Say, you're going to lose your soul if you don't change if you don't repent and come back to Christ. Those two things are what I call you to. If the church can assist you in any way, will you come to the front and make that need known while we stand and sing?